Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a fellow of the Mises Institute, assistant professor of economics at Florida Southern College, and a fellow of the Center for Free Enterprise. He holds a doctorate in economics from George Mason University and specializes in Austrian economics. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Patrick Newman. Thanks for joining us on the show, Patrick. Thanks for having me on. First, I want to ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your field of study. Sure. So I am uh, an economist. I have a doctorate in economics. I teach in Florida. Uh, so I'm an economics professor. And I focus, my, a lot of my research focuses on Austrian economics, economic history, particularly American history in the 1800s, monetary policy. So those are the fields that I work on. I've edited uh, two books by Murray Rothbard, one on the progressive era, the other on the U.S. Constitution. And I now have my own book that just came out, published by the Mises Institute, uh, Cronyism. All right. Um, well, I wanted to start off by asking you about a hot topic in the news these past few days, which is the new infrastructure bill passed by Congress just yesterday. Um, while some argue that the bill will create long-term economic growth and countless jobs, others insist that amidst a $30 trillion national debt and unprecedented inflation, a trillion dollar bill is reckless. I wanted to get your take on it. Yes, I'm. I'm not a fan of the the infrastructure bill. I certainly think there's a lot of little special interest privileges, goodies in there regarding uh, you know the development of, of of certain roads or infrastructure in politicians' favored districts and etc. This is something that I'm against. I think it's inevitable. A lot of the back and forth was sort of politics, and while the Republicans were against infrastructure, they've already signed on to a previous infrastructure bill, and then there was a enough Republicans in the House to allow the infrastructure bill uh, to pass the House. And this is, it seemed somewhat inevitable. It's not the initial price tag that uh, President Biden and the Democrats wanted, but it's something that they'll get just through successive laws. And it's always an opening wedge. So the infrastructure bill, I was honestly shocked they didn't pass it before the Virginia elections. Uh, last week, I thought that was actually somewhat of a deciding factor. If they passed the bill, I could have seen um, the Democrats uh, winning the governorship. But anyway, so they're, they're, they're going to pass the infrastructure bill. It's certainly crony. It's not going to provide economic benefits. It's really just going to divert resources uh, from the private sector to the government, which doesn't operate off of profit and loss. And it's just going to be something that will look like an accomplishment when in reality it's not. All right. So secondly, another issue that has been a hot butt um, hot in the news this week um, are the proposed taxes on unrealized gains. So there's been much controversy surrounding the constitutionality and justifiability of taxing unrealized profits, especially considering the bill could have significant, a significant impact on the financial planning of many middle class Americans. I'm sure our listeners would love to get your take on the proposed changes. Yeah, so that's something I need to look more into. I've done a lot of research on either wealth taxes, capital gains taxes, income taxes, et cetera. Uh, ostensibly, so traditionally, the, the very wealthy uh, are are actually somewhat okay with income taxes because they get most of their, their, their wealth. They already have a lot of wealth and what income they do get comes from the capital gains tax. So for example, um, you know, the, the wealthy, like a lot of people say, oh, Bill Clinton raised taxes on the wealthy. That's actually not true. In 1997, I want to say he cut the, 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 the capital gains tax for the highest earners down, which was really a, uh, uh, you know, a, a tax cut uh, that benefited the, the wealthiest. Not, not saying I'm against it. I actually I, I agree with it. I say it's good. 
Uh, this is really the beginning, I would say it's a quasi wealth tax. So it's the idea that, well, before you even sell uh, your stock, right? You, if the price has gone up, that's unrealized, right? You haven't sold it yet until you, once you sell it, you realize it. It's kind of sort of an opening shot into a wealth tax because you're, you're taxing the value of a property, right? In a sense, I know there's all sorts of um, differences and, and, and they're, they're going to deny that, but it really is the beginning of a wealth tax. And I think it's what they're really trying to get at is the fact that the stock market has really boomed over the past 10 years. And so Uncle Sam is going to want his cut of that. Once you start doing that, it's really the opening wedge into wealth taxes, which are not going to be only on the richest Americans. That's often how they're advocated. Uh, it's going to be extended to the middle class. We've seen the exact same thing with the income tax. Income tax initially was only supposed to be on the wealthiest Americans. By the 1940s, it extended to the middle class. They will also extend this uh, wealth, this quasi wealth tax, uh, to to lower and lower groups. They'll broaden it. They'll make it account for more uh, types of assets you could have a capital gains on, and it will it will hit the the middle class. Okay, so um, as I understand it, uh, a specific area in which you possess considerable expertise, um, especially your book, your book is on this topic, um, is cronyism. So whilst there's broad bipartisan agreement regarding the negative impacts of corporate lobbying and campaign fundraising, very few practical solutions have actually been suggested from either side. Um, is there anything you can propose that may help mitigate the impacts of crony policymaking? Yeah, so I think really, so there's there's some good news and there's bad news. I guess the uh, the the well, I, I guess I would say bad news and less bad news would probably be more accurate. The the bad news is that I think it's it's very hard to actually reform Washington. Uh, oh, we're going to send the right people. We put the right people in charge. They'll be able to fight the special interests. They'll be able to stop the pressure to provide short term benefits right before an election, so on and so forth. Unfortunately, it does not appear that this is going to happen. Whatever chance there was to significantly reform Washington was decades, if not hundreds of years ago, as I talk about in my book, going through the battles of the Jeffersonians uh, and then the, the Jackson and then the Jacksonians trying to fight cronyism. I think the, the 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 solution really would be trying to find various forms of decentralized resistance, so either nullification or secession. So trying to bring politics down more to a state and local level, which I where I think there's a greater chance of making a difference. It's easier to run for office on the state and local level. It's easier to energize constituents. Uh, regarding you know local politics that really hit home, especially with various things such as mask mandates and so on, the the the, the one uh, really the one policy at the federal level that I I would I support and I think there's bipartisan agreement on uh, at least bipartisan agreement from your average voter is having some form of term limits where the you cannot just have someone be a senator for uh, 30 plus years, et cetera. Term limits were a very noble uh, uh, tradition. At least we always tried to install in, in early American history because it was the it really related to this concept known as rotation in office, where you're cycling out the elites to prevent them from being entrenched. And politicians on in both parties, Republicans and Democrats, the elites have always very vigorously fought term limits. And the reason they do so is because term limits would uh, weaken the ability of certain politicians uh, from benefiting from various legislation 
year in and year out collecting bribes and campaign donations and lot you know lobbying um uh you know benefits etc over the years and that's why politicians are against it but so i would say really either you can support term limits bipartisan uh or just try and put more things down on the state and local level all right um so i also wanted to ask you about your take on monetary policy um which i i'm given to understand is another area of expertise for you um especially regarding the record low interest rate so while the discount rate has remained steady at 0.25 percent for well over a year there is much debate surrounding whether or not it's time to start raising it um given the current economic situation what is your view vis-a-vis -vis changes to the interest rate at this time so the discount rate is really kind of the upper bound on the in on, on interest rates, right? So you think of the federal funds rate, uh, the Fed tries to target the federal funds rate doesn't actually uh, directly influence it. The lower bound is the interest on excess reserves. That's the interest rate the Federal Reserve pays uh, on the deposits of various commercial banks at the Fed. And then you've got the discount rate, the rate if you just want to directly borrow from the Federal Reserve. Well, Monetary policy has been pushed uh, to extremes over the past two years, even beyond what we've seen after the Great uh, Recession. And this is really because uh, the, the way of increasing uh, bank reserves or really trying to uh, fight um, to try to stimulate the economy was very different in 2008. We increased bank reserves and the Federal Reserve increased bank reserves through open market operations, the discount window, et cetera. And then they paid banks not to lend out that money which led to low inflation. The money supply didn't really increase that much and inflation remained uh, very low by historical standards in the 2010s. Since COVID in the 2020 uh, and 2021, the Federal Reserve not only lent to banks and bought their securities, but also lent directly to businesses and bought directly from businesses. So the money supply increased uh, much more than what happened during the crisis of 2008. Money supply M2 uh, shot up you know, 20 plus percent, et cetera. Uh, very large increase historically. And the Federal Reserve continuing this easy money. So it's purchasing about $120 billion uh, in assets a month. That That's contributing, at least is starting to contribute to the high inflation we see now. So the monetary policy, I think, is a, is, is a mess. The Federal Reserve's definitely in a difficult situation because they didn't anticipate inflation would be this big of a problem now. Inflation is not only a problem in the United States, but also in Europe, in Asia, in developing countries, et cetera. And they do need to raise rates. Uh, to, they need to stop increasing the money supply and, and raise rates, uh, which will you know, reduce inflation. But this is going to come at the cost of a recession, which the Democrats don't want because they're in control of Congress and they want to increase their control in the 2022 midterm. So the Federal Reserve has a lot of pressure to not raise rates or at least raise rates after the midterms. And I think that's going to contribute to higher inflation. And that that certainly is. Um, I mean, if if that sort of pressure that you speak of um, actually manifests itself uh, in so far as keeping the interest rate at uh, um, the current rate um, for another year or maybe even more, um, that certainly is a as it would be a a, um, a failure of of our political system. Then, because the entire point of the Federal Reserve was that um, it was supposed to be independent of, of government. It was supposed to be independent of the political branches. Um, so that it could make monetary policy, um, you know, it can make sensible, objective monetary policy that could control inflation. And so um, I, I don't know how, how how we would 
um, reconcile it if if the Fed um, started to get um, subsumed into this uh, uh, this political arena, which it, it was supposed to be kept um, strictly out of. Yeah, well, the Federal Reserve has been kind of has been political, I would say, from the beginning. It's an illusion that it's not uh, the, 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 the central bank is independent. Now, granted, the central bank is more independent than other uh, central banks around the world, particularly in developing countries where really it's just an arm of the tre- of, of the, 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 rel- the relevant treasury. But the Federal Reserve has been constrained by political considerations before. It's no coincidence that the last time, the last era of high inflation really throughout the 1970s, one of the contributing factors of that inflation was that Richard Nixon wanted to win re-election in 1972. So he more or less forced then chairman of the Federal Reserve, Arthur Burns, to increase the money supply to juice the economy before the election. And that was a factor that basically caused led to higher inflation uh, in the subsequent years of, of, of the decade. You see this now where the Federal Reserve is in a position where it's 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 closer to the uh, the central government then has traditionally been uh, then has traditionally been the case. If you think of it like this way, the former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen, she is now the Secretary of the Treasury, right? Um, uh, Jerome Powell, who's the current chair, Jay Powell, his his uh, as he's Fed chair, and his term is up for reappointment or renewal in uh, twenty twenty two. All right, so they have that constraint. Uh, there are several vacancies on the board of governors and with a slightly stronger Senate or maybe even right now, if you wanted to, President Biden could appoint people. Naturally, he's going to appoint people who are uh, going to support the Democrats agenda, who want to who will support low um, interest rates and easy money to facilitate their various spending programs and so on. So there are a lot of political constraints uh, recent political constraints that have, have tied the Federal Reserve. Again, I can't stress enough that, you know, the former head of the Federal Reserve is now the secretary of the Treasury. And we've only had that one time in the in the last time we had it was in the 70s. And that, of course, was an era of high inflation. Yeah. Um, and finally, um, the last thing I wanted to get your take on was the uh, debt ceiling. So the national debt has been in the news a lot. Um, Congress extended um, the debt ceiling, I, I believe, until December. So um, a, a lot of economists have mixed views on this. A lot of economists um, that are proponents of modern monetary theory don't view the national debt as something to be worried about. Um uh, as they, they argue that as long as the national debt creates more um, economic growth than um, the this, this spending that it took and the interest rates um, that they have to pay on it, um, then the, an ever-increasing national debt on its own is not an issue. A lot of other economists say that um, you know this is a, a ticking time bomb and it, it is something that is eventually going to, to come back to bite us. Um, so I want to get your take on, on this whole situation. Mm-hmm. The debt ceiling is a nice little polish, I guess. You, it's, it's it's a little barrier that we like to feel good about. Oh, we've got a debt ceiling that prevents it. And every time there's always some controversy, some battle over the debt ceiling. And it's, oh, is the government going to be shut down? And are we going to raise the debt ceiling? You know, initially during the Trump presidency, Democrats, they wanted to uh, not raise the debt ceiling. They wanted to hold Trump's agenda hostage just because they wanted to start getting some of their uh, items uh, in the and in, 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 in Congress's various uh, legislation. Now you see the exact same thing under the Biden administration where Republicans are, are refusing to raise it. it. It doesn't really do a good job of stopping 
uh, increases the national debt. I certainly disagree with modern monetary theory regarding that the national debt doesn't matter simply because the government can just print their own money. And as long as growth rates are higher than interest rates, everything's okay. Uh, the government spending per se uh, by itself does not stimulate growth. Um, it, it, I've, it, the, the idea that it does is based off of a mistaken Keynesian theory that whatever the government spends, this is, this is just as productive as what a business spends, right? Uh, government, again, it's not based off of their decisions or not based off of economic calculation, some sort of profit and loss, cost benefit analysis, et cetera. So the government will just continue to take on debt. Uh, we're certainly getting a debt problem now. The reason why we haven't really seen a debt problem emerge over the past 10 years, despite the government's adding more and more to their debt, is simply because interest rates are very low. They've been very low by historic standards since the financial crisis. This is a combination of the fact that we've had very easy money. And we've also seen a, a large increase in savings from baby boomers uh, and, and relevant age groups who are starting to retire, who have been retiring. And traditionally, at the beginning of your retirement, you're going to save more when you're preparing for retirement or you're starting to retire, you're going to save more. But as the baby boomers get older uh, into their 70s and 80s, they're going to start to draw down on those savings. And just a variety of other factors, like if you've got high inflation now and the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates, higher interest rates would really put the government's borrowing um, programs under, under a lot of stress because we borrow a lot short term. And it's always been based off of low interest rates, at least for the past 10 years. So if interest rates rise a couple percentage points, the government's uh, spending is going to go up just because they're going to need to uh, spend more just to service the interest on the debt. So I, I don't think the debt ceiling is really a good uh, policy. It's just it's something that it's nice and it makes for for fun politics or interesting politics uh, whenever it becomes a constraint. The real issue is uh, re reducing the incentive of politicians to want to spend uh, ad nauseum. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Um, I want to thank you once again for joining us on the show, Dr. Newman. Well, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure talking about these issues. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.